to set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. I am emphatic about this. The moment any one of you submits to circumcision or any other rule-keeping system, at that same moment, Christ's hard-won gift of freedom is squandered. I repeat my warning. The person who accepts the ways of circumcision trades all the advantages of the free life in Christ for the obligations of the slave life of the law. I suspect you would never intend this. But this is what happens. When you attempt to live by your own religious plans and projects, you are cut off from Christ. You fall out of grace. Meanwhile, we expectantly wait for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior, faith expressed in love. You are running superbly. Who cut in on you, deflecting you from the true course of obedience? This detour doesn't come from the one who called you into the race in the first place. And please, don't toss this off as insignificant. It only takes a minute amount of yeast, you know, to permeate an entire loaf of bread. Deep down, the master has given me confidence that you will not defect. But the one who is upsetting you, whoever he is, will bear the divine judgment. As for the rumor that I continue to preach the ways of circumcision as I did in those pre-Damascus Road days, that is absurd. Why would I still be persecuted then if I were preaching that old message? No one would be offended if I mentioned the cross now and then. It would be so watered down, it wouldn't matter one way or the other. Why don't these agitators, obsessive as they are about circumcision, go all the way and castrate themselves? It is absolutely clear that God has called you to a free life. Just make sure that you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. Rather, Use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's how freedom grows. For everything we know about God's word is summed up in a single sentence. Love others as you love yourself. That's an act of true freedom. If you bite and ravage each other, watch out. In no time at all, you will be annihilating each other. And where will your precious freedom be then? My counsel is this. Live freely animated and motivated by God's Spirit, then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness. For there is a root of sinful selfishness, self-interest in us, that is at odds with a free spirit. Just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness, those two ways of life are antithetical, so that you cannot live at times one way and at other times another way according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. 
repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I have warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good, crucified. Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with others as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is an original. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The kids are invited to kids' church with Emily today. Look it up, Emily. It's, it's your day. Emily Greener. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up his very life for our sins so that we might be snatched, uh, snatch us out of the grasp of the present evil age, thus acting in accordance with the attention of God our Father. Amen. These are the opening words to Paul's letter to the Galatians in a way that calls us into both how Christ is um, giving himself up for our sins in this world and taking us out of the present evil age. I've used this analogy before, but, but if you think about waking up on June 4th in your house in Normandy, France, uh, 1944, and thinking about going down to the beach, and you go, yeah, Kevin, Kevin knows that's a mistake, um, but you go down to the beach, and you begin to see, I actually don't know where Pointe du Hoc is, but I know there was a, is it near Normandy? 
Yeah, so you go down and the first thing you see is you're enjoying your nice day on the beach. You've brought your, uh, your, your chair and, and you're sitting out as you notice some rock climbers on Point du Hoc and they're going up to the top. These are, these are actually Marines um, going and you don't quite get the message. And so you notice a, a beautiful armada of ships coming in. Uh, not beautiful ships, but very militaristic fits, ships. And you still don't quite get it. And they begin to come onto the land and uh, warfare breaks out, but you live there thinking, this is not the day I pictured when I went to the beach, but it's still fine. And as this goes on and on, you still try to maintain your idea that today is a good day to be at the beach, rather than to accept the battle has come home. This is what Paul is trying to draw us into in the book of Galatians, is see that there is an ongoing battle happening around us. And yet, as many of us Christians, myself included, uh, probably one of the greatest (laughs) blindnesses myself, is that this is going on all around us. And I think, I just wanted to preach a nice sermon today. Uh, I just wanted to survive the church meeting and enjoy a sandwich. Um, And we don't quite see that. Now, I should say, first off, I'm not uh, crazy about these over-militaristic images for the faith. Paul is, so I'm stuck with that. Um, But the other thing is is that uh, most of the thinkers I know who have grasped onto this way of thinking about the book of Galatians are those who live in the frame of Christian nonviolence or pacifism or whatever you else, however else you want to describe it, which I think is interesting because there's this knowledge that I think um, some people have in which there is conflict in the world and we need to be strong against it, and they instantly go to the worldly frame for that. But I think for these thinkers who have committed themselves to thinking, There is conflict in the world. They're not like me at the beach saying, look at those rock climbers. Why do they have such big guns? Must be an elk up there. Um, As if that makes any sense. Um, Because they've committed themselves to not thinking in the worldly frame of life. They acknowledge that what the scriptures are talking about is how this conflict is continually coming in a spiritual realm in a realm beyond what we see, in a realm beyond what we know. And so the possibilities in which we engage in that fight, which Paul is talking about these fruits of the Spirit, this way we walk in the midst of this battle, is much different than if we were to live in the frame that says, I need a bigger army than you do. Um, And that, that, I think, is part of the challenge of this passage. And so we see it here, what I've been reading at the start of every sermon, which is uh, J. Lewis Martin's um, translation. Chris read for us uh, Eugene Peterson's translation from the message today, which I, uh, his contemporary stretching of uh, uh, works of flesh, fruits of the spirit, uh, it hits. (laughs) It's like the one that we know from the King James, just, you can can wash right through it. But when Eugene says, you know, uh, comparing yourself to one another and this, that, and the other, it's like... Why'd you have to ruin my day? Um, Is that he says that we will be grasped out of the present evil age. And what Martin's trying to trace throughout his commentary, and what I've been trying to chase in in these sermons to some extent too, is especially as we get to this end part, is that the present evil age doesn't just give up. That we live in this overlap of ages. And so what Paul's going to talk about today is don't use your freedom to live in that past world that is fading and passing. But use your freedom to live into this new world, this new place, and this new thing where things have changed. 
There's a, there's a theologian um, who, who talks about how those who bear crosses work with the grain of the universe. And we think the other way. I mean, it, this is um, either a stake, as I say, or a woodworking analogy. Uh, you cut with the grain or against the grain. Um, but what we think we see in the world is to suffer and to walk as Christ is to cut against and be countercultural. Um, and perhaps in the frame of this world as it still exists, that might be true. But what the theologian is trying to point out is that in the grand scheme of things, those who live under crosses are going with the grain of things. Because as these two orbs, these two realms exist, and in, in this passage it would be that of the flesh and that of the spirit, the one of the flesh has no place in the future, in that glorious day, the kingdom, as Paul says in this passage, that we await. And so if you're going to talk about how we see the world and how we're training ourselves to be Christians in the world, we're talking about what lasts, not about what is fading. And we can confuse ourselves. There's, a, there's another phrase, the upside-down kingdom, which, which is one I like, but it begins to make you think that, again, that, that the truth is, is, the, is the right way, and we're just dissidents to the truth, rather than the truth is the upside-down way. The truth is in the other way. I, I'm aware that this is hard with our church being in defiance. We are in defiance to the regular patterns of the world, and yet we are aiming to be in the true patterns which God has established and fully real, revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. And we await that glorious reconciliation of all things ourselves. So this is where we find ourselves today in the book of Galatians. Um, this being drawn into this world in which this present evil age in a different way than we've been so far. So far, Paul has been walking through, and we've, we've talked about how there's a, there are these teachers, this is Paul, um, these teachers on the other side who are advocating different ways of sort of getting yourself out of the human situation. In this, situa in, in this passage, in this later passage, Paul is going to talk about that desire of the flesh, which is actually a bigger thing than just your skin, but this whole power that wants to destroy and distort and tear down. But to say that they're saying that the way out of this situation, projection, because we only have one side of this correspondence, we don't know actually what they're saying, but projection-wise, they seem to be saying something that Paul, when he came to you, Galatians, he brought you the new, good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And as you received that, we've come to tell you that there are these um, customary elements, perhaps, of ritual Judaism that will give you the full thing. And not only that, these things will be more instrumental or very instrumental or helpful in getting you out of the situation we're stuck in this world. They, that, that while Paul has given you a law-free gospel and Paul has given you freedom, um, we know, because we have the whole Old Testament on our side, that we often use that for bad th things. And so we're going to bring you back to the law that God has established in the Old Testament so that you can use that to guide your way of following Jesus Christ. Paul finds this as we've gone through a great offense to the gospel. And he's, his image for considering this is that, is that Gentiles, um, those who aren't Jewish, are actually becoming heirs of what God intended all along in Abraham's promise or in the last passage that, the, that this is uh, they are children of the promise through Sarah rather than children of the slave woman. Of, of, and it's, 
of human possibilities. So what happened in that passage, as we remember, is, is, is that uh, Hagar was, was um, Sarah's slave, handmaiden, whatever you want to say, and, and she offers him to Abram because they're getting very old and they may not have kids. And so within human possibility is, is this child. And what Paul says to the Galatians is, you are children not in the realm of human possibility, but children of the Spirit, children of the promise, you have become the seeds that Abraham was spoken of before the law came. We talked last week about how it's important that Paul doesn't disregard the law like a Marcionite or the Old Testament, but uses the promises embedded within to correct. As Christians, for 2,000 years, we've been tempted to say that we really need these other books. We'd get a lot lighter and easier to carry around if we cut them off. Um, the, I thought that was a, I only have so many jokes, people. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> We've faced that temptation. And what Paul, in, in the midst of these people, he could have said, you know, God's doing a whole new thing. Let's abandon that. And I'm telling you, Galatians, don't listen to their use of this Old Testament. But instead, he, he correctly points out that what he's been advocating for them is the truest direction of that teaching the fulfillment of that teaching, the coming of age of that teaching. And it's not um, logical in the sense of like we should have just expected this. For Paul, this is an interruption to business as usual, but as an interruption, everything changes. So that's where we've been in the book of Galatians so far. Today, we begin with a warning that Paul has this last sort of warning, and he hasn't talked about circumcision directly that much, but that's one of the works that the teachers, the opponents of Paul, are trying to bring to this community, is, is that you need to take on this ritual act of circumcision. You need, to, you need to become Jews in this way. And Paul here is finally starting to say that, is that that's a mistake, to go into that is to then say to go back into the realm of human possibility. What he's been arguing for them is that your people of a promise being rescued out of this age, brought into the new age of the spirit, not because of anything you can do. And so for Paul, as he's going through this, um, this is just that one question we continually ask is what will free us, justify us, rectify us, restore us, um, is, is sort of um, bringing that about. Um, but Paul, as he's, he's talking to them at the beginning, this is where it starts, yes, um, is he's telling them that this will not be of use to them in the way they think it will. First, one of the things that is quick, you can quickly notice is, is if you think about what the teachers are saying, he says that you will be obliged to obey the whole law. Reading Galatians and trying to understand what his opponents are saying, it doesn't seem like they're actually trying to make them Jews, but a weird hybrid of Jewish Christian. They're trying to say we can, we can be participants in this thing, but, but it doesn't include everything, but includes some things, and, and we've picked which things. And so if you're a Galatian uh, thinking about circumcision, and he's, they're saying, you know, just think uh, Sabbath, mm, some food stuff, and maybe this, um, that's how we're going to join and manage this. And Paul says to you, it's not just Sabbath food stuff and two or three other things, but the whole law which you're going to come under. Um, that's his first argument for you to begin to think, maybe this is not the world I want to walk into. Um, 
And particularly because Paul has been pointing out that the whole law pretty much is a guardrail at best, a pedagogue, uh, something that instructs us in the ways in which we're going wrong, but has not been able to free us from that. And one of his arguments is uh, the whole Old Testament bears from we haven't been freed from that as Jews. Um, We need something to come from the outside to make that freedom possible. Uh, So Paul, uh, the the Messiah becomes of no worth. Um, uh, You're going to have to follow all the whole law. And you cut yourself off from grace and the spirit. You're alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Um, This is... You, you put yourself in the realm of what you can do, um, which makes this whole Jesus thing and this inbreaking from outside not necessary. Um, you begin to trust in your own possible ways. This, again, uh, where Peterson perhaps was helpful, um, is uh, it's our daily lives. I can do this. I can. I mean, Galatians, I think, still rings true because we, while we are not chasing back towards the Old Testament to say, let's take on these covenant marks, but we are chasing our own self-control and fulfillment of our own salvation in many ways. And even in the church, we've talked about how Paul is teaching not a gospel plus message. Um, I think one of the gifts, and I don't believe in knock on wood, but the gifts of our church um, and our community, and I've been saying this throughout, that we've prayerfully and gratefully lived in a space absent of great conflict is because we try to stay away from the gospel plus something. We keep it simple. We don't want to say, you come into this church and you do this, and you take on this, and, 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 and then we set within our own walls, and this is where Peterson got into uh, in the works of the flesh to some degree, is we set up within our own walls our own competition around these things. And Paul, as I've been saying, is particularly worried about zealotry. It comes up again in this passage. Uh, we, uh, I am zealous for the Lord. People would go, good for you, man, go get it. And, and Paul thinks, perhaps not. Um, because zealotry is this, this opportunity to become blinded to other people and other things. It's, it quickly turns to competition. It quickly turns, in, in the Old Testament imagination, towards, towards murder and destruction, too. Um, and some of these are held up as heroes, and some of them aren't. But, but Paul seems to have in mind a patient, caring, walking with the faith that trusts in the fidelity of what God has done. I think perhaps that's another problem with, with zealotry, is it becomes about what I'm doing. Um, rather than, as we've talked about, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Um, and so Paul is, is working through these with the law. Uh, and he says, though, for, though the spirit, uh, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness by which we hope. Galatians has lived in a very realized eschatology so far. We don't wait and hope for that much because God and Jesus Christ completed everything. That is a true statement from the book of Galatians. So it's weird that Paul here says this is something for which we wait and hope. But what Paul is acknowledging, and this is where a fully realized eschatology, and people will make this complaint, if you have, I guess, if you have nerdy friends like I do, <laughs> You, nobody's ever said, your eschatology is too realized to many of us, I'm guessing, but it's happened to me. It's a fun time. Um, the, uh, 
the, uh, the, 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 the notion is that, uh, and we see this in some of Paul's letters where people stop working. If you know, remember, that the, they begin to think Jesus is coming back instantly, and so we be, can begin to not participate in this world, but really just become this um, prayer sort of amorphous blob that doesn't really engage with the world. This is denying the battle in a different way, perhaps. And, and so what Paul is saying here is that while all the work has been completed in Christ, we still live in this overlapping of the ages, and that's, that's the key part of it, is that there's an overlapping of the ages. There's one in which we are being dragged back into slavery and sin and destruction and death. Death still happens. Again, in one of Paul's other letters, he has to correct people who are like, we're not going to die, Jesus is coming back. Too fully realized eschatology. Um, what Paul is saying here is that we still await the fulfillment of this thing. In classic sort of gospel ethics, this is called the already and the not yet. There's an already of the kingdom of which God has done, and there's a not yet that's fulfilled. Um, uh, To pick on a contemporary issue, lack of access to clean water is something that still kills people. And to say that we live in the age of the kingdom in its fullness while people die from lack of access to clean water uh, makes the kingdom in its fullness not seem very good. Um, And so Paul here, naming that, uh, I think, again, I've always tried to argue for reading slow, which I get to do all week with these passages. Um, And that's one where if you read slow, you begin to notice something. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Uh, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We're going to talk about that more as this passage continues. Um, but Paul will say at the end of Galatians that for in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value, but new creation. Um, and that, I think, is worth keeping in mind as it's not just the only thing that counts as faith expressing itself through love. But Paul has in mind this whole new creation, this whole new world that expresses what counts, that expresses itself through love. Uh, you were running a good race, and somebody cut you off. Uh, this is what Paul thinks of the teachers. He said harsh words for them. Uh, the message, would, did it castrate themselves? Um, the NIV ends with emasculate themselves, so um, you get the point. Um, that, that, that Paul, and, but, but what we can miss here is Paul is talking about how the flesh, and so we, back when we went through Genesis, I gave a sermon on circumcision, um, a highlight of my pastoral ministry. But um, one of the things I tried to express was that what happened for people is they thought, uh, I can give up a little bit of skin and become a member of these people. Or I can, in, in the Old Testament, we'll talk about in several passages, the circumcision of the heart. I'm going to have to take a cut to myself. Now, you're... Uh, a more holy person than I am if you're like, I'll give up like the tip of my pinky to be in on this God thing and not have to do any of the other stuff. Um, to live a holy life, to deny myself, to move into God's faithfulness. Or I get to keep my pinky, but I have to live a holy life. And what happened is that people have begun to take like this little work of the flesh as a thing, where it was actually, and perhaps some, there's some idea that the circumcision in the Old Testament is meant to be this way in which God gets into your whole body and your whole lineage. Um, But they've taken it to just be like, oh, it's just the cut. And so that Paul is going to move to the flesh later, I think, is instructive to say, are you going to use the flesh to get out of your struggle with the flesh? Or are you going to use the spirit that comes from beyond? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else worth 
yeah, these people have thrown them into confusion and this, that, and the other. The last thing is the emasculate, castrate yourself things. People use this to justify like using firm language in the church, and it never is used like this is a big deal. Um, when people use this in, in relationship, like I'm like Paul and I'm going to give a harsh word, it's like this, this, they just wanted to sing how uh, Amazing Grace with the extra chorus, not not like circumcised people. It often gets out of play. But one of the things that I think we can learn from this is that uh, there is a group of people that in their religious uh, zealotry would castrate themselves in an island not far from Galatia. And why Paul perhaps uses this analogy is you thought the gospel of Jesus Christ was getting you out of paganism. And I wish those of you who are zealous for a little bit of circumcision would follow back to your pagan roots and just cut the whole thing off. Um, he's, he's pointing out again that, that you're captured in this web, and it's much harder to get out of than you think. Um, you, brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not your freedom to rather indulge, indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in love your neighbor as yourself. Um, if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Paul here is turning now to this um, teaching he's going to give us about works of flesh and works of love. Um, this call to freedom, uh, there's a quote on the back of the bulletin about this freedom isn't just floating around or something like this, but, but call into a, a real sort of movement in the world. It's not a call to be abandoned to flightfulness and fits of fancy. Perhaps that's an over-realized eschatology too, but being called into something which binds us to one another in a free way. We talked last week about how Americans, we primarily think of freedom from I have freedom from all the restrictions people might want to place on me, freedom of religion, freedom of this, freedom of express, um, uh, uh, press, freedom. So we, nobody has limits on us. But uh, classically, freedom from also includes a freedom for. You have a freedom for the gifts of the Spirit. You have a freedom for um, being equipped with Christ. You have a freedom for things. And so we only think freedom from, but freedom from often comes with a freedom for. Um, and so he's, he's trying to call them into that freedom not to indulge the flesh, but rather to serve one another humbly in love. Paul is trying to set up kingdoms that are witnesses, or churches that are witnesses to this kingdom. This is his main drive, I think, at the end of the letter, is that if we are going to say a new age is dawning, there needs to be a place, a small place on earth, in which that new age can be seen to be taking root in the world. This is at Defiance Church. We say our, mit, our mission is to be a witness to the reign of God, reconciling all things. It's that um, witness to. He's, he's asking for communities to be a witness to this truth in the world. Um, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as love yourself, which is from the book of Leviticus. Brian read that passage from Luke's gospel where Jesus, uh, hearing somebody else say it, says that this is what's necessary to live. The Shema from the book of Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Um, love your neighbor as yourself from the book of Leviticus. So two Old Testament instructions, again, coming together in the gospel here, just from the book of Leviticus. I've made this joke a hundred times, and nobody ever laughs. I think it's funny is that people are like, uh, non-Christians will often say to Christians, I don't know why you guys think about the Old Testament so that much, and why you guys you know, are so concerned with what God forbid there, and, and this, that, and the other, and those stories. Aren't you just supposed to love your neighbor as you love yourself? Which comes from the thing we're overly concerned about. Um, 
uh, it's made its way into culture, which is good and helpful, but let's say that, that it comes from a particular place in a particular teaching in a particular way. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed. I think I don't need to say much, but I think that's uh, we see that in our cancel culture today. Now everybody's going to be looking at that drawing and not listen to what I was saying. Um, uh, and cancel culture, I don't think, is just epidemic on the right or the left. It's something that seems to take up most of our political discourse. If we can get you and it got you, you're done. Um, and we do this in the church as well. Um, if we can point out one moment of hypocrisy, then we get to eat and devour each other. And so we walk around with weapons all the time, just looking for ways to murder each other and leave them on the way. And a quote that comes from a New York Times writer uh, that I always try to bring up around this is, it's hard to live in a society that demands constant atonement, but offers no forgiveness. Um, that, that's this bite, devour, and destroy each other. It, we've turned it in, in not wanting to kill you, but to catch you in a way that we get to kill you over and over again. And when you say you're sorry, we just forget about it and don't even offer the forgiveness. We don't forget about it, we just, you're done. Uh, we don't offer the forgiveness that comes with that. So to the drawing. There is a realm of the spirit and there's a realm of the flesh. Um, some commentators have, have pointed out that, that humans are engaged in this proxy war or are proxies in a war between these two forces. As what God has created in this world, we are caught between this realm of the flesh and this realm of the spirit. And this is, you could overlap this with us or, or something like that, but we are caught in this space and in this war between these two things. This is what Paul is going to talk about in these passages. And the, the, the flesh is not uh, giving up easy in this, but trying to grasp what it can and to pull us back and to pull us down. And we have this opportunity through our baptisms and the gift of the Spirit to live in this new way. Um, the, the way that Paul is going to talk about this in this next section and a little bit before is that we walk and in the Old Testament, walking is taking on a way of life. Psalm 1 really names this. Um, we walk by the Spirit, we war, and that fruit comes from this. That these are the ways in which there is a way of walking in which we are being invited into. There's a way of warring, which again, I want to go to the beach. I don't want to think about that. And two, that at the result of this is fruit, which we'll, we'll get to how that's an interesting observation from Paul here in a moment. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. This is that conflict becoming clear. You walk by the Spirit, and the flesh will try to pull you back, and it desires what it does, but that is contrary to the flesh. Again, if you read this in a flat way, oh, it's the opposite. But it actually means there's a conflict. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want, but you are led by the Spirit, so you're not under any law. The law is not going to be helpful here. The acts of the flesh are obvious, which I just love. <laughs> it's just, okay, moving forward. Um, this is a... Uh, a prayer of confession I love from the theologian Stanley Harwas, but I just think names so well. Gracious God, humble us through the violence of your love so that we are able to know and confess our sins. We want our sins to be interesting, but God forgive us, they are so ordinary. Envy, hatred, meanness, pride, self-centeredness, laziness, boredom, lying, just lust, stinginess, and so on. 
you have saved us from and so on to be a royal people able to witness to the world that the powers that make us such ordinary sinners have been defeated. So our caption, our attention with the beauty of your love, that the ugliness of sin may be seen as just that, ugly. God, how wonderful it is to be captivated by you. Amen. It's a wonderful prayer, but the, uh, it was drawn to that because he's like, the acts of the flesh are obvious. We want our sins to be interesting, and yet they are so boring. These, these things play out in, in all our movies and all our stuff. Uh, the first three, um, uh, first three have this notion of sort of sexual and sort of body, bodily purity. The next three um, deal with uh, sort of what Jews would have said about Gentiles, um, uh, idolatry, uh, witchcraft. This is where if you want to, to read the message of the week, Eugene Peterson's way of making these more contemporary to us is very helpful. Um, and you can, if you don't own a message, BibleGateway.com, you can use that to read this in the message. Uh, and then the last one is, is drunkenness, orgies, and addictions that seem to tear the community apart. This is one of Paul's few references to the kingdom of God. These will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is to say, if you live your life in this way and in these practices and this destructiveness, it doesn't have a place in what's to come. It's not faith expressing itself through love, which is what counts. It's not new creation what counts. It's just disorder and dysfunction that destroys and tears down. And these, I think, are worth remembering. These are, are things that really destroy a community, too. We think about them perhaps as individual vices, but if you really think about them, they're all ones which move beyond individual vices. Even, uh, well, drunkenness and orgies obviously include other people um, to some degree, or at least involve other people in the violence of those things. Um, these don't have a place in the com new community that God is building. I don't know why in this translation it doesn't say it, but he talks about these are works of faith, which is interesting because the next thing he talks about is... Um, fruit of the Spirit. You have this contrast between these are works and the other are fruit. Paul has been in this letter dealing with what are our works and why we trust our works and why following the law is a work for us or circumcision is a work for us. And what he gets to, what we get to practice, is not a new kind of works, but something more like the way that fruit appears on a vine. It's not something we make. We live in a world that um, almost all our analogies are, are manufacturing. I'm going to go make something of myself. I'm going to go. Uh, but, but the New Testament world, and many of us don't farm today, is very organic in the images that it sees. These are things that work out. And it's not to say they appear with no work. When I was in seminary, uh, a lot of people would say, I just want to plant a church and I want it to be organic, which means I don't want to do any of the tending. I'm not an expert, but if you're going to farm with our chemicals or pesticides, it's going to be more work, not less work. And I think that's, while these things are organic, and I don't want to say that they're more work, but they are things that we put effort into and involve ourselves in walking by the Spirit. What appears from them appears more naturally than the works that we bend and try to do. They are gifts in that way. And they are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, or faith, gentleness, self-control. Um, all Christian jewelry still comes in the King James, which I love. Um, there's probably two reasons for that. One is it's public domain, so you don't have to pay anybody. Um, 
corruption abounds. Um, uh, patience, I just love to pause on that word because Kelly has a bracelet, which I meant to grab today. Are you wearing it, Kelly? No, that, that patience is described as long-suffering. Um, that's the way the King James translates the word patience, and I just love that. What does it mean to suffer long? Patience always seems to me like something I should be able to pleasantly practice, um, not something that is that involved in this long suffering. But these three in these groups sort of work together too: love, joy, and peace, um, patience, kindness, self-control. These these um, meta larger virtues: love, joy, and peace. These ways in which we deal with our community with patience, kindness, and goodness. If you're going to have people sin and fall away, faith, gentleness are ways in which we can bring them back. That this is a way of of, of naming a way in which a community is fruitful in the world. Um, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. Um, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Uh, those who belong to Jesus Christ have been crucified with the flesh. Going back in Galatians, uh, for though the law, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is, I think, what Paul is talking here about the end in five, is this idea of... Um, Dave and I were talking before the service about moving from faith in Christ to faith of Christ or faithfulness of Christ, is that we move into what God has accomplished. We don't move into us making this thing, but we move into what God has accomplished. Uh, Eugene Peterson, I don't know where he got this one, but in the Sermon on the Mount, he translates one phrase that we learn the unforced rhythms of grace in the world. We learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And we don't learn that through our own work or striving, but it comes to us as a gift from God. We move into that place, seeing the pattern of which Christ lived in. We're adopted into that frame. We cry out, Abba, Father, that it is now us who live in that way. As we end the sermon, uh, one, one thing is, is love has played a big role in today's passage. It, it's helpful to think of love as cruciform love, which means it's love that's in the shape of a cross. Love today has so much to do with, one, like, I think, um, and then I don't know if anybody else has noticed, m- much social media now, you heart things, which is obviously a way of sort of saying you love it, which is uniquely terrible, I guess, in, in many ways. Um, uh, it just is like, oh, you love these things, but they're at a critical distance to you. Whereas the love that Paul talks about is this cruciform love that is determined by who Christ was for us in the ways that he was for us. And I think the one thing I would say about this love in a culture that seems to deal with so many causes and so many other thing, uh, things so far exterior to us is that it's, uh, uh, there's a novelist who describes it as getting down in the pit with someone. It's easy for me to love and care about all the, the uh, North Koreans living under that dictatorship, but I don't know any of them. But my neighbors annoy me in their own particular way, each one of them. <laughs> and the call there is to love what's particular and concrete to you. 
I'm not saying don't love starving children in Africa. The, I don't know if you guys have ever, last joke, the, the one of the woman said you should, to her child, you should eat all that food. And he said, she said, there's charging children in China. And she said, and he responded to her, okay, name one of them. Um, which is this way of saying that like, you don't know them, you just use them in a certain way. And I think we do that often in our culture. We use these, these groups and causes in a way to divide. When it's like, do you know the names of the people who live near to you? Um, I'm overjoyed that our church has a full meal sheet for the Anderleys. There are people near to us. I care about mothers who are about to give birth, but I don't know any of them. And yet here, we know one, and we've signed up to provide food for them. And I don't think these are small things. I think these are things worth cherishing and remembering, because this is the last thing, is that Paul, as I said, and I just wanted to, to end with this, is Paul is trying to make these communities in this world that witness to that these virtues, these things, that have died to the flesh, that have died to human effort to save ourselves, and are growing in the kingdom that God has prepared for us, in those virtues, in that new creation. Faith expressing its through love, itself through love is what is count, or new creation is what counts, which either one you want to take from Galatians. Paul is asking for the churches. Galatians wasn't written to one guy. For the churches in the world to be places that are witnesses, are coming under this reign, are moving into this frame and beginning to see the old world crumbling in its prayer and in its goodness. We know, because of if we think about that opening analogy of January uh, 5th or 6th, it's, it's a world that's in battle. And yet we know how it turns out. That the final victory is secure in who Jesus Christ is. That these things have been fulfilled and we can live freely in the midst of that. Let us pray. God, we, as your servants, as your people, as those claimed in the world, often can forget that the flesh still clings on, that there is death and destruction and despair around us that this is a wartime thing you have brought us and engaged us into. Not to be fought by flesh and blood, but by principalities and powers, God. Open our eyes to the ways in which we can be this community engaged in the world in fierceness. Engaged in your new creation. Engaged with faith expressing itself in cruciform love. Engage with your spirit reigning in our lives and in our church so that we can begin to look towards that new creation day. And for a world that disbelieves, that there would be a tangible place, at least attempting to on earth, to point to this kingdom in the midst of its of the flesh and its destruction. God, you are saving us from this present evil age, and you have given yourself up for our sins. Be with us now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.